and welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin, your host, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Welcome to the show. Hello, welcome to episode 10 of Christ in Context. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Today we are continuing our series through the book of Zechariah. Um, I'm really excited about this study that we're going through. We're just studying through Zechariah part by part. Um, right now we're getting into the very first of eight visions that Zechariah has. So it's going to be interesting as I have gone back and reread these visions. I've been like, man, we are tackling a beast because even the first vision, I was really confused, but thankfully we've got some good commentary, some good sources. Uh, so I, yeah, we'll, we'll be, I'll be doing the best that I can. Um, if you have any questions, remember to send them my way. Um, just a little update. My church has finally started to meet again in person. Um, and it, it's been great. So today is Sunday. It's the Lord's day. And it was so so good to finally meet together with uh with our church family and yeah i just i just wanted to share that update um i don't know if anyone who's listening has even known that our church wasn't meeting but yeah we took a break for a while we were supposed to meet a couple of weeks ago and then a bunch of our members ended up getting covid or thinking they had covid so it was a mess. We took a couple di- a couple weeks off and we finally are meeting again. We've also been renting from another church building. So we've had to coordinate with that church's guidelines as well as the government guidelines, which has been kind of difficult. But yeah, that's what's going on in my life. Uh, we've got classes starting up tomorrow. So on Monday, the 17th, we've got classes starting. I'm really excited and also kind of nervous because I go to a Nazarene university, which is predominantly Wesleyan, uh, and I'm in the school of theology. So I'm one of the very few reformed, uh, guys that go to the school and yeah, we'll see how it goes. A lot of times there's bickering and whatnot. So I digress. Anyways, uh, we are, it's, it's the last year, so I can, I can put up with one more year. (laughs) <laughs> so anyways, let's get into Zechariah. Um, this one's going to be, this is going to be good. Um, especially the ending I'm really looking forward to. Um, I was reading some of Calvin's notes from his commentary and he had some, some good things to say. Um, so we'll look at the, the vision that Zechariah has kind of explaining what might be going on. And then at the end, we're going to discuss like maybe what does this mean? Um, cause there's, in art of interpreting scripture as it is. And then when it comes to visions, um, there's a whole nother layer that's added of interpreting. Like a lot of times visions, like in Daniel, there'll be a vision and then Daniel will give an interpretation that he got later. But in Zechariah, there's not exactly a, uh, it doesn't exactly tell us what the vision means. So sometimes we kind of have to pick and prod at it and kind of ponder like, well, what do, what do we think that this means? So I'll give some, at least what John Calvin has said, and I thought that was really helpful. So without further ado, um, I'm just going to read these next uh, 10 verses. So 
we're in Zechariah chapter 1, and I'm going to read 7 through 17, and then uh, we'll go back and look at some of the context and just go verse by verse. There's a couple where we'll go a couple verses just because they go well together. So starting in verse 7, it says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet of the Lord. Uh, oh, oh, hang on. <laughs> I don't know what just happened, but I think I just like, my eyes just stopped working. I'm going to start over. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is in the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Then I said, My lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So there's a lot going on. Um, I don't know how long this episode's going to go. Uh, we're just going to go for it. Um, just for a reminder of what the context is, um, Zechariah. This is another vision that Zechariah had, and so he makes a note of when this happened, which is the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius. So this is towards the end of Darius's second year of reigning. Um, as king of Persia. And so this is right around the year 520, maybe the beginning of 519. It kind of depends on <clears throat> how we slice and dice the calendar year. Um, what, However we slice it, it's still Darius has been reigning for almost three years, but definitely two years. So uh, there was nationwide peace. There were during the first two years, there were some people who were trying to split off and make their own kingdoms or trying to revolt and Darius shut them down. And now there was essentially nationwide peace, which felt like worldwide peace. So uh, the exiles had returned to the land for 16 years at this point, I believe. Um, they were rebuilding the temple got stopped for a while and then started building again. So that's kind of what's going on. Uh, as already mentioned, Zechariah is 
he's a prophet, the son of Berechiah, who is the son of Edo. Edo is probably a priest or of a priestly family. Um, that's pretty much all that I've got for the first verse. Um, it's just an introductory verse explaining who Zechariah is and when this vision happened. And then this, all of the eight visions that come are all part of this. They lean on this first uh, sentence that this was the 24th day of the 11th month uh, when Zechariah had this vision. So then verse eight, I saw at night and behold, a man was riding on a red horse and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine with red sorrel and white horses behind him. So this indicates that the vision was, you know, it might've been taking place at night while Zechariah was having the vision or it could have been during the day and the vision that Zechariah saw was at night. Um, doesn't really matter, but like which position you take on that, as long as we understand that the vision that Zechariah is seeing is at night. Um, it's the, the four horses idea is picked up later by John and we'll, I'll get back to that in just a little bit. Um, it's not exactly used in the same way, but it's really interesting. Uh, I didn't do a ton of study on that just because I'm getting ready for classes to start. So I didn't have a ton of time to get into that study. Uh, it also would have just been a huge rabbit hole. Um, so I'm trying to stick to Zechariah, but if you want to do some of your own study, go look at how revelation six uses Zechariah one and I think there will probably be some really interesting stuff. Don't get lost too much in the weeds, though. Uh, so let's just move on to verse 9. Then I said, Zechariah said, My Lord, what are these? And so he's talking to an angel, and the angel who was speaking with Zechariah said to him, I will show you what these are. So in each of these visions, uh, this angel is kind of carrying Zechariah through. He's like helping him out through these visions and Zechariah asks about the vision and then the angel explains to some capacity what's going on um, or just continue like kind of helps the vision continue along. And so we'll see in this next verse how the angel goes about this. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees, so he was with the red horse answered and said, so this is where it gets interesting. So the man among the myrtle trees answers. So he's responding to Zechariah's question, or he's responding to the angel saying, I will show you what these are because he says he answered and said, these are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So he's explaining to Zechariah that these horses who presumably probably have horse riders, I guess you could imagine that these are talking horses because later in the passage, the horses answer. And so I'm not going to say that they were talking horse. I'm not going to put it past the, I'm not going to say that it didn't happen, but I think it's just more likely that Zechariah saw, um, people riding on these horses and just didn't make a note of it. It was kind of assumed, but, uh, <clears throat> so, the the guy who's standing among the myrtle trees and he's got the red horse, he answers and explains that these are those, these meaning the horses are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. 
Verse 11, so they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. And that's where things get a little confusing. So is the person that is standing with the red horse an angel of the Lord? Is he the angel of the Lord who was um, expl- who's giving the vision to Zechariah? I'm going to s- say that the person standing among the myrtle trees, the man, is an angel of the Lord, but there is another angel who is taking Zechariah through this vision because they respond to the... And some have said that the guy in the myrtle trees who's standing there and the angel who's giving the vision to Zechariah, who's kind of mediating this whole thing, they're the same person which I could understand. I'm not going to take a hard stance on it. Um, It doesn't, I don't think that it changes the text or our understanding of the text that much, but that's just, those are two different ways we can look at it. Either there's two angels that are talking back and forth with each other, um, which I think it makes sense that the angel, that the man standing among the myrtle trees with the red horse is an angel because of the way that uh, the rest of the the people with their horses respond to this guy. They say, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. So they're giving a report to this chief guy. So here's what, here's what Calvin says and why I'm saying that um, the guy among the myrtle trees is a chief of the rest of these patrolmen. And then there's an angel kind of mediating everything. It's because Calvin has said, uh, there were then, as it were, a troop of horsemen, but the prophet says that one appeared as the chief leader who was accompanied by others. In the meantime, an angel stood at the side of the prophet who led him and showed to him his concern for the holy city and the chosen people. He then adds that these horsemen had returned from an expedition for they had sent to review the whole world and its different parts. He therefore says that they had returned from their journey and also the whole earth was quiet, that men enjoyed peace and tranquility everywhere, which makes sense in light of the historical context that Zechariah is in, that Persia was at peace. So it kind of makes sense that the world is at peace because Persia was the leading world power. So if they're at peace, the world is at peace pretty much. Um, and so Calvin's explanation is what I would affirm that there's these four horses. They each have um, a man. They're all messengers reporting to God. And the angel of the Lord is kind of mediating, uh, standing at the side of Zechariah. So that's, that's the position that I'm going to take. I'm not going to die on that hill. Um, but that, I think that's the most reasonable one to take. So, um, each horse patrols the earth and this is where things get interesting with Revelation chapter six in Revelation six, three and four, you can read the whole chapter and it's the first six seals being broken. And then there's the interlude. And then in chapter seven starts, um, the 144,000 and then it gets into the seventh seal. So, at the beginning of chapter six in verses three and four, it says, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come, 
and another, a red horse, went out. The first one was a white horse, and then so this time it's a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So I'm not going to go into much detail or a lot of speculation because, as I said, I didn't do a ton of study, but I do think that it's really interesting that there's a rider of a red horse, and he is acknowledging that there's peace across the whole world. And then in Revelation, I'm going to say that it's the same rider. Maybe it's not the same rider, but I think John is definitely picking up on imagery from Zechariah that the rider of the red horse has gone out and taken the peace that he was likely delegated to have from the Lord. So uh, if you want to go study that, go and do as much studying as you want, I guess. Um, but I'm not going to spend too much time there. Just I don't have the time to get there. Um, but I do want to additionally add that there was some... Uh, at the end of this verse, it says uh, that there was peace. And so just continuing on, why why is this note added that there was peace across the whole world? And like for us, we just kind of see this as a descriptor. Like, okay, yeah, there's peace across the world, whatever. It doesn't make a difference. Um, but this is crucial for post-exilic theology and um, the way that the Israelites understood the... Um, end times, like how they were expecting God to rebuild uh, the nation, and then as well, uh, kind of the understanding of the kingdom of God coming. So in Haggai 2, well, before I get into Haggai 2, 5 through 9, I just want to continue with that, that uh, just looking at my notes, post-exilic theology said that God's kingdom would dawn only after an upheaval among the nations, which is the dead opposite of what was happening. So Zechariah hears that there's peace, but they're still supposed to build the nation, like rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, but there's no peace, but it's all peace. There's no upheaval of the nation. So it kind of feels like God has abandoned them and is prospering the nations. It's just, there's a little bit of confusion. Let me read Haggai 2, 5 through 9. As for the promise which I made you... When you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So, uh, there's this prophecy from Haggai, who was a contemporary of Zechariah. They lived at the same time, prophesied together. Uh, and Haggai is giving this prophecy that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, the dry land, everything. God's going to shake everything and all the nations. And he's going to fill his house, his temple with glory. Um, And he says that gold and silver is mine, you know, essentially, which is to say, like, don't cling to it because it's all God's. 
Um, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, which is ironic because it says um, in Ezra Nehemiah that once the temple was finished, the the people who had lived and saw the first temple, and then they see the second temple after it's completed, they wept because it was nothing. It was nothing in comparison. It was, it was, it was nonsense. It was nothing. Um, the first temple that they saw was beautiful. It was extraordinary. And then there's this janky little second temple and they wept because it wasn't how they wanted it to be. So, there's this encouragement that God is going to bring. He's going to shake everything. He's going to fill his glory, uh, you know, make it super well-known. Um, and I don't know the ins and outs of how that is fulfilled or how it will be fulfilled if um, the New Testament writers saw uh, Jesus as the fulfillment of this or if they saw him as part of the fulfillment and then um, this is still, you know, that God will one day in the future, um, come back and shake the heavens and the earth because it's, it's hard to tell with some of these prophecies. Uh, a lot of them are fulfilled in one real sense. Um, but then they also have an eschatological sense where they will be fulfilled down the line in a greater and more full way. So it's hard to tell with some of these, whether it was something that has been totally fulfilled if it was just a messianic prophecy or if it was in part a messianic prophecy and in part an eschatological prophecy or um again this is something that i didn't spend a lot of time on so sorry about that but uh verse 12 says then the angel of the lord said "O lord of hosts how long will you have no compassion for jerusalem and the cities of judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years. So the angel of the Lord is speaking on behalf essentially for all of Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, It's this umbrella question that all of the the Jews likely would have been asking, you know, like, God, when are you going to come back and rescue us? When are you going to restore your glory? When are are you going to get rid of these nations and make us the the big nation again. And, uh, there, there's an answer that God gives. So we'll get to that in a second. And I want to make a little bunny trail on, uh, the 70 years. Why is it important that, um, the angel mentions that God has been indignant for these 70 years? Well, the 70 years was predicted by Jeremiah twice in chapter 25, 11, and 12, and then in chapter 29, verse 10, Jeremiah makes this prediction. So in chapter 25, he says, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. And then in chapter 29, verse 10, again, Jeremiah says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So the question kind of arrives at, has the 70 years been completed? 
um, because we can measure the 70 years in two different ways, either from the year 605 BC to 535 BC or from 586 to 516 BC. The reason why we have those two different measurements is because in 605 is when the first deportation of the Babylonians sending Babylonians sending people out was and then 535 was the first uh return to Jerusalem. So that's one way we can look at it. And then in 586 was the temple being destroyed and in 516 was when the temple was completed. So if that's the way that we're going to look at it, 586 to 516, then the 70 years isn't over yet, but Zechariah is assuming that the prophets before him were correct that it was 70 years. So either way, there's a general understanding. If if we take 605 to 535, then there's an understanding that uh, the 70 years is completed. But if it's 586 to 516, then there's an understanding that 70 years is about to be completed, just a few more years, um, which is kind of why the angel is asking, uh, how long will how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? Uh, so again, either way you can take it, um, but it's definitely assumed that 70 years is the cap of how long the uh, Israelites were in exile. So moving on, we're going to do three verses in one. They all go together really well, 13, 14, and 15. Um, sorry, I was checking how much time I've got left, and I realized that I don't, Oh, it's only been 20 minutes. Easy, guys. Easy money. Um, so, verses 13, 14, and 15. The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So, uh, Zechariah says he's making a, a prelude to these words. He says that these are comforting words from God. Um and the angel, verse 14, so the angel who was speaking with me said to me, and these are the comforting and gracious words, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Verse 15, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. So, Let's take a step back and just look at um, what does God say? So the first thing he says is, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. In Hebrew, it's uh, kineti and then le Yerushalayim, the, I don't know what Zion is in Hebrew, um, kineti, yeah. Sorry, it's in really small letters on my computer, so I'm trying to squint. I've got my glasses on, and I still can hardly read it. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, to say kineti is to say that God is essentially lacking tolerance for his rivals, while 
(laughs) vigilantly guarding Jerusalem and Zion. I cannot talk. Wow. I've got a dry mouth. So, yeah. For God to say that he is jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion is to say that God is not going to tolerate anyone who opposes his chosen people, and he's going to uh, he's going to guard Jerusalem with, uh, like, he, he's going to do what he, all that he can to guard them, which is an infinite amount of guarding. <laughs> uh, God's jealousy for his people should be taken with great comfort. So this, this phrase that God is exceedingly jealous and he's exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion is those words are the comforting and gracious words. It's comforting that God is not going to let Jerusalem and Zion continue to be destroyed. He wants them to be built up and therefore he is going to help them be built up. Uh, He is not going to let them be destroyed anytime soon. Uh, It's, it's gracious because God is, if, if God were not being gracious towards his people, then he obviously would not be helping them to be rebuilt. He wouldn't be caring for them. Uh, And God continues to be righteously angry with the nations who destroyed Israel uh, this next phrase, while I was only a little angry, is a bit of an interesting phrase because in Hebrew it's literally ani, uh, kat, katsafti, and then me'at. Ani, katsafni, katsafti, me'at. Which could literally be translated as, I was angry, small amount, or I was angry, little which just doesn't make sense because the question is what what is the object of small amount or little uh does it mean that god was only a little bit angry um in his you know the amount of wrath that he poured out on israel which is totally possible it's a totally fair way of understanding it or does it mean uh that he was only angry with a small amount of people in comparison to the larger amount of people who had destroyed and furthered the uh, destruction, which I'm going to say, I'm going to side with um, the second, the latter, that God is um, only a little bit angry in terms of the amount of people that he destroyed in and he is far more angry with the people who furthered the uh, destruction and desolation of Israel. Moving on to verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, which this whole saying, uh, my house will be built in it and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem is in my opinion, clear repetition. So to say that God will build his house and then, or my house will be built and a measuring line will be stretched 
is to repeat the same idea because if you're going to build a house, you're going to need a measuring line. So um, God is making it very clear that he is going to build his house in Jerusalem. Uh, and there's more to say about the measuring line because there's um, a prophecy or a vision that Zechariah has in chapter two about a measuring line. So we'll get more into that in a later episode. Verse 17, which is the last verse of this really beefy uh, study, (laughs) this beefy section, and again proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So I have to stop at the word prosperity. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. And I want to stop there because this might be a hot button or a hot verse for someone who claims the prosperity gospel. And they might say, see, God wants to give us prosperity. He wants to give us, he wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy, which is not at all what is going on when God says that his cities will overflow with prosperity. For God to say that his cities will overflow with prosperity means that he will be faithful to his people and that his people will obey his law. Because the law that God had given his people was intrinsically related to um, agriculture and other ways of being, of having uh, healthy produce and continuing, like, uh, a lot of the laws had to do with different ways of harvesting um, regulations for taking care of people who didn't have land, things of that nature, where if you perfectly obeyed the law and had a desire to obey God's law, then it was it would naturally follow that the um, the soil would um, it it would be prosperous. And of course, that has to do with God. Um, giving prosperity to that land because the people are faithful and desire to serve God. They're not just following the law out of obligation, but because they want to please God in their following of the law. So that does not mean that if you're just a good enough person and you pray hard enough, God's going to give you prosperity. Um, it's a specific um specific statement for a specific people does not mean that uh, we will always have earthly prosperity if we just obey hard enough. Um, I I don't know how else to stress that or how I can stress that hard enough. Um, I think there are other New Testament promises that sound as if there's a push for prosperity or a relation to the Old Testament that, you know, God wants to give us prosperity, but the way that I would explain it is that, uh, for example, in Romans eight twenty eight, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And I would say that that's related to our sanctification. So if we are, if God is working things for our good, we automatically have to assume that it is God defining what is good and not our own definition of what's good, which would mean as far as the New Testament is concerned, it might mean suffering and losing everything for the sake of Christ. But 
if we are losing everything and gaining Christ, we're actually losing nothing and gaining everything. Uh, if we are clinging as tight as possible to Christ, then there's nothing that really that we are going to lose. If Christ is holding us in his hands, there's nothing that we're going to lose and everything that we are going to gain. Uh, it's not a worldly prosperity by any means, but it's heavenly prosperity in that we are growing in the image of Christ. Okay, on to the next half of that verse. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. If you haven't noticed, I really, really hate the prosperity gospel and will do everything I can to refute it and explain why it is not biblical. So, the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. These are some of the comforting words that Zechariah is talking about, that uh, the Lord will not be far off like it may have felt, but he will comfort Zion. He'll be um, near and uh, he'll be that warm and uh, helpful guiding hand. He's going to choose Jerusalem. He's it, It's not going to feel as though God has abandoned Jerusalem anymore. Um, God is essentially saying that he's going to be faithful to his people um, and faithful to his promises. God always upholds his promises. So what's the purpose of this vision? That there's horses and there's people riding the horses, reporting to an angel who was also riding a horse. Like, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, here's what Calvin had to say, and I thought this was brilliant and makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it just really helps with our understanding of it. I regard this as the object. This is Calvin speaking. That horsemen were presented to the prophet that he might know that God does not remain shut up in heaven and neglect the affairs of men, but that he has, as it were, swift horses so that he knows what things are everywhere carried on. As then kings having horses at command send their riders here and there and bid them soon to return to them that they may know what to do. So the prophet ascribes here to God the character of a chief sovereign who inquires respecting all the affairs of men. In other words, God is showing Zechariah that God is the chief sovereign and he knows every nook and cranny, everything that is going on, things that Zechariah might not see, things that the Israelites might not see. God still knows what is going on, and he's intimately involved in knowing what is going on. Uh, even though he doesn't need horsemen, it's a picture that Zechariah can understand to tangibly see and encourage the Israelites that God does see, He's and he's involved in it. He's not just out uh, watching from afar, but he's near and close and involved in seeing and uh, hearing reports of what's going on. So we affirm that God is omniscient and knows all things, but um, it's this picture that God is not just uh, abstractly and far away from his creation, knowing all things that might happen, but he is um, he's close. He's near to us. And he knows what he's doing. So this is really comforting. 
because not only do we have this picture of God being near and close to um, his creation and uh, in the midst of what feels like the opposite of the Israelites' hope, there's still hope that God is giving them, that even though the time for God to shake the heavens and the earth is not here yet, uh, God is still near and uh, choosing Jerusalem and Zion. He's choosing his people. He's for his people. And more than that, what I always love to say is that God is for God. Uh, that, that was actually one of the hardest pills for me to swallow as I came into Reformed theology, that God is ultimately for God. Uh, it's that, that was just something that I had never heard before on my own. But once I had accepted that truth, I had realized like, wow, that's so comforting that God is for his purposes. And I don't have to worry about impressing him. I don't have to worry about uh, trying to earn my way into getting God to be for me, but rather if God has his own purposes for my life and he is intrinsically for himself, then that means that I'll be included in that. So it's, it's really beautiful that God is for God. So take this uh, passage, this vision as comfort that we are in the midst of chaos where it seems like every day we wake up and there's more chaos going on than the previous day. Um, At least in America, I know that there's plenty of listeners who are out of America, but within America, it feels like the political scene is constantly just degenerating into a dumpster fire and it's hard to see where there's hope. But what we can see from this passage overall is that God is faithful to his promises for his people. And so let us as God's people uh, be encouraged that he's faithful. So until next time, continue to seek God in his word. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen. And subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. If you have a question that you would like to hear answered on the show, reach out on social media or email us at ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. We are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters and Doctrinal Discipleship. For other edifying material, check out reformpodcasts.com and Doctrinal Discipleship either on Facebook or doctrinaldiscipleship.com.